the most important thing that can be done today is moving away from the idea that coin voting is the only legitimate form of governance decentralization. Welcome to Ethereum, Audible, Ethereum in Depth. I'm Yoshua Sladogorsky, and today we're going to be wrapping up our on-chain governance series with a great, great epic read uh, by Vitalik on moving beyond coin governance. Now, I think this piece really brings together a lot of the different themes and parts that we've already been discussing. So a lot of the themes here will be familiar to you, or they should be. And that's good. That was the goal. That's why I wanted to discuss this topic. It sounds boring sometimes, governance, but really it matters so much to on-chain projects and any decentralized applications that we're building. Governance is what matters. Governance makes the chain run, um, not figuratively, actually, literally. So it's important to understand it. And that's why we're going to be wrapping up the series with this great read by Vitalik, Moving beyond coin governance. But first, I want to thank the sponsors of the show who made this episode possible. This episode is brought to you by Alp Audio. Want to learn on the go but need more depth than a podcast? Alp is the app for you. It's an audio education app that brings great in-depth courses that are as fun as podcasts but as educational as a degree. Each lesson comes with summaries, additional resources, flashcards, and more. You can even find Ethereum Audible on Alp with all of those additional resources. If you want to check it out, head over to get.alpaudio.com, and that's A-L-P-E, Alp, A-L-P-E. Let's go. Moving beyond coin voting governance. One of the important trends in the blockchain space over the past year is the transition from focusing on decentralized finance to also thinking about decentralized governance. While the 2020 is often widely and with much justification hailed as a year of DeFi, over the years since then, the growing complexity and capability of DeFi projects that make up this trend has led to growing interest in decentralized governance to handle that complexity. There are examples inside of Ethereum, YFI, Compound, Synthetics, Uni, Gitcoin, and others have all launched or even started with some kind of DAO. But it's also true outside of Ethereum, with arguments over infrastructure, funding proposals in Bitcoin Cash, infrastructure voting in Zcash, and much more. The rising popularity of formalized decentralized governance of some form is undeniable, and there are important reasons why people are interested in it. But it's also important to keep in mind the risks of such schemes as the recent hostile takeover of Steam and subsequent mass exodus to Hive makes clear. I would further argue that these trends are unavoidable. Decentralized governance in some contexts is both necessary and dangerous, for reasons that I will get into in this post. How can we get the benefits of DGov while minimizing the risks? I will argue for one key part of the answer we need to move beyond coin voting as it exists in its present form. DGov is necessary. Ever since the Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace in 1996, there has been a key unresolved contradiction in what can be called cyberpunk ideology. 
On the one hand, cypherpunk values are all about using cryptography to minimize coercion and maximize the efficiency and reach of the main non-coercive coordination mechanism available at the time, private property and markets. On the other hand, the economic logic of private property and markets is optimized for activities that can be decomposed into repeated one-to-one -one interactions, and the infosphere, where art, documentation, science, and code are produced and consumed through irreducibly one-to-many interactions is the exact opposite of that. There are two key problems inherent to such an environment that need to be solved. One is funding public goods, as in how do projects that are valuable to a wide and unselective group of people in the community, but which often do not have a business model, for example, layer ones and layer two protocol research, client development and documentation, get funded. Two, protocol maintenance and upgrades. How are upgrades to the protocol and regular maintenance and adjustments operations on part of the protocol that are not long-term stable? For example, lists of safe assets, price oracle sources, multi-computation key holders agreed upon. Early blockchain projects largely ignored both of these challenges, pretending that the only public good that mattered was network security which could be achieved with a single algorithm set in stone forever and paid for with fixed proof-of-work rewards. This state of affairs in funding was possible at first because of the extreme Bitcoin price rise from 2010 to 2013, then the one-time ICO boom from 2014 to 2017, and again from the simultaneously second crypto bubble of 2014 to 2017, all of which made the ecosystem wealthy enough to temporarily paper over the large market inefficiency. Long-term governance of public resources was similarly ignored. Bitcoin took the path of extreme minimization, focusing on providing a fixed supply currency and ensuring support for layer two payment systems like Lightning and nothing else. Ethereum continued developing mostly harmoniously, with one major exception, because of the strong legitimacy of its pre-existing roadmap, basically proof of stake and sharding and sophisticated application layer projects that required anything more did not yet exist. But now increasingly, that luck is running out and challenges of coordinating protocol maintenance and upgrades and funding documentation, research and development while avoiding the risks of centralization are at the forefront. The need for DGov for funding public goods. It is worth stepping back and seeing the absurdity of the present situation. Daily mining issuance rewards from Ethereum are about 13,500 ETH, or about 40 million per day. This is in August 16 of 2021. Transaction fees are similarly high. The non-EIP-1559 burned portion continues to be around 1,500 ETH, $4.5 million per day. So there are many billions of dollars per year going to fund network security. Now, what is the budget of the Ethereum Foundation? About 30 to $60 million per year. There are non-EF actors, for example, consensus, contributing to develop it, but they are not much larger. The situation in Bitcoin is similar, with perhaps even less funding going into non-security public goods. Here is the situation in a chart. This is the estimated Bitcoin and Ethereum spending on proof-of-work versus R&D, proof-of-work spending for Bitcoin and for Ethereum is really high in the order of magnitudes of 10 to 12 times higher than the R&D spending. Within the Ethereum ecosystem, one can make a case that this disparity does not matter too much. 
tens of millions of dollars per year is enough to do the needed R&D and adding more funds does not necessarily improve things. And so the risks to the platform's credible neutrality from instituting in-protocol developer funding exceeds the benefits. But in many smaller ecosystems, both ecosystems within Ethereum and entirely separate blockchains like BCH and Zcash, the same debate is brewing. And at those smaller scales, the imbalance makes a big difference. Enter DAOs. A project that launches as a pure DAO from day one can achieve a combination of two properties that were previously impossible to combine. One, sufficiency of developer funding, and two, credible neutrality of funding, the much coveted FAIR launch. Instead of developer funding coming from a hard-coded list of receiving addresses, the decisions can be made by the DAO itself. Of course, it's difficult to make a launch perfectly fair, and unfairness from information asymmetry can often be worse than unfairness from explicit pre-mines. Was Bitcoin really a fair launch, considering how few people had a chance to even hear about it by the time a quarter of the supply had already been handed out by the end of 2010? But even still, in protocol compensation for non-security public goods from day one seems like a potentially significant step forward towards getting sufficient and more credibly neutral developer funding. The need for DGov for protocol maintenance and upgrades. In addition to public goods funding, the other equally important problem requiring governance is protocol maintenance and upgrades. While I advocate trying to minimize all non-automated parameter adjustments, see the limited governance section below, and I am a fan of Rai's ungovernance strategy, there are times where governance is unavoidable. Price oracle inputs must come from somewhere, and occasionally that somewhere needs to change. Until a protocol ossifies into its final form, improvements have to be coordinated somehow. Sometimes a protocol's community might think that they are ready to ossify, but then the world throws a curveball that requires a complete and controversial restructuring. What happens if the US dollar collapses and Rai has to scramble to create and maintain their own decentralized CPI index for their stablecoin to remain stable and relevant? Here too, DGov is necessary, and so avoiding it outright is not a viable solution. One important distinction is whether or not off-chain governance is possible. I have for a long time been a fan of off-chain governance wherever possible, and indeed for base layer blockchains, off-chain governance absolutely is possible. But for application layer projects, and especially DeFi projects, we run into the problem that application layer smart contract systems often directly control external assets, and that control cannot be forked away. If Tezos's on-chain governance gets captured by an attacker, the community can hard fork away without any losses beyond admittedly high coordination costs. If MakerDAO's on-chain governance gets captured by an attacker, the community can absolutely spin up a new MakerDAO, but they will lose all the ETH and other assets that are stuck in the existing MakerDAO's CDPs. Hence, while off-chain governance is a good solution for base layers and some application layer projects, many application layer projects, particularly DeFi, will inevitably require formalized on-chain governance of some form. DGov is dangerous. However, all current instantiations of decentralized governance come with great risks. To followers of my writing, this discussion will not be new. The risks are much the same as those that I talked about in Notes on Blockchain Governance, 
Governance Part 2, Plutocracy is Still Bad, and in On Collusion. There are two primary types of issues with coin voting that I worry about. One is inequalities and incentive misalignments, even in the absence of attackers, and two, outright attacks through various forms of often obfuscated vote buying. To the former, there have already been many proposed mitigations, for example, delegation, and there will be more. But the latter is much more dangerous elephant in the room to which I see no solution within the current coin voting paradigm. Problems with coin voting even in the absence of attackers. The problems with coin voting even without explicit attackers are increasingly well understood. For example, see this recent piece by Dapradar and Monday Capital, and mostly fall into a few buckets. One, small groups of wealthy participants are better at successfully executing decisions than larger groups of small holders. This is because of the tragedy of the commons among small holders. Each small holder has only an insignificant influence on the outcome, and so they have little incentive to not be lazy and actually vote. Even if they are rewards for voting, there is little incentive to research and think carefully about what they are voting for. Two, coin voting governance empowers coin holders and coin holder interests at the expense of other parts of the community. Protocol communities are made up of diverse constituencies that have many different values, visions, and goals. Coin voting, however, only gives power to one constituency, coin holders, and especially wealthy ones, and leads to overvaluing the goal of making the coin price go up, even if that involves harmful rent extraction. 3. Conflict of interest issues. Giving voter power to one constituency, coin holders, and especially over-empowering wealthy actors in that constituency, risks overexposure to the conflicts of interest within that particular elite. For example, investment funds or holders that also hold tokens of other DeFi platforms that interact with the platform in question. There is one type of strategy being attempted for solving the first problem, and therefore also mitigating the third problem, delegation. Smallholders don't have to personally judge each decision. Instead, they can delegate to community members that they trust. This is an honorable and worthy experiment. We shall see how well delegation can mitigate the problem. The problem of coin holder centrism, on the other hand, is significantly more challenging. Coin holder centrism is inherently baked into a system where coin holder votes are the only input. The misperception that coin holder centrism is an intended goal and not a bug is already causing confusion and harm. One broadly excellent article discussing blockchain public goods complains, quote, can crypto protocols be considered public goods if, if ownership is concentrated in the hands of a few whales? Colloquially, these market primitives are sometimes described as public infrastructure. But if blockchains serve a public today, it is primarily one of decentralized finance. Fundamentally, these token holders share only one common object of concern, price, end quote. The complaint is false. Blockchains serve a public much richer and broader than DeFi token holders, but our coin voting driven governance systems are completely fa failing to capture that. And it seems difficult to make a governance system that captures that richness without a more fundamental change to the paradigm. Coin voting's deep fundamental vulnerability to attackers, vote buying. The problems get much worse once determined attackers trying to subvert the system enter the picture. The fundamental vulnerability of coin voting is simple to understand. A token in a protocol with coin voting 
is a bundle of two rights that are combined into a single asset. One, some kind of economic interest in the protocol's revenue, and two, the right to participate in governance. This combination is deliberate. The goal is to align power and responsibility, but in fact, these two rights are very easy to unbundle from each other. Imagine a simple wrapper contract that has three rules. If you deposit one XYZ into the contract, you get back one WXYZ. That WXYZ can be converted back into an XYZ at any time. Plus, in addition, it accrues dividends. Where do the dividends come from? Well, while the XYZ coins are inside the wrapper contract, it's the wrapper contract that has the ability to use them however it wants in governance. For example, making proposals or voting on proposals. The wrapper contract simply auctions off this right every day and distributes the profits among the original depositors. As an XYZ holder, it is in your interest to deposit your coins into the contract. If you are a very large holder, it might not be. You like the dividends, but you are scared of what a misaligned actor might do with the governance power that you are selling them. But if you're a small holder, then it very much is. If the governance power auctioned by the wrapper contract gets bought up by an attacker, you personally only suffer a small fraction of the cost of the bad governance decisions that your token is contributing to, but you personally gain the full benefit of the dividend from the governance rights auction. This situation is a classic tragedy of the commons. Suppose that an attacker makes a decision that corrupts the DAO to the attacker's benefit. The harm per participant from the decision succeeding is D, and the chance that a single vote tilts the outcome is P. Suppose an attacker makes a bribe of B. The game chart looks like this. To accept an attacker's bribe, the benefit for you would be B, the attacker's bribe, minus D, the harm to the participant, times P, the actual chance that, that the vote goes against you. If B is larger than D times P, you are inclined to accept the bribe. But as long as B is smaller than a thousand times D times P, Accepting the bribe is collectively harmful. So if P is less than one, and usually P, the chance that the proponents, that the attacker will succeed in their vote is far below one, there's an opportunity for an attacker to bribe users to adopt a net negative decision, compensating each user far less than the harm they suffer. One natural critique of voter bribing fears is are voters really going to be so immoral as to accept such obvious bribes? The average DAO token holder is an enthusiast, and it would be hard for them to feel good about so selfishly and blatantly selling out the project. But what this misses is that there are much more obfuscated ways to separate out profit-sharing rights from governance rights that don't require anything remotely as explicit as a wrapper contract. The simplest example is borrowing from a DeFi lending platform, for example, Compound. Someone who already holds ETH can lock up their ETH in a collateralized debt position in one of these platforms. And once they do that, that collateralized debt position contract allows them to borrow an amount of XYZ up to, say, half the value of the ETH that they put in. They can then do whatever they want with this XYZ. To recover their ETH, they would eventually need to pay back the XYZ that they borrowed, plus interest. Note that throughout this process, the borrower has no financial exposure to XYZ, 
That is, if they use their XYZ to vote for a governance decision that destroys the value of XYZ, they do not lose a penny as a result. The XYZ they are holding is XYZ that they have to eventually pay back into the CDP regardless. So they do not care if its value goes up or down. And so we've achieved unbundling. The borrower has governance power without economic interest, and the lender has economic interest without governance power. There are also centralized mechanisms for separating profit-sharing rights from governance rights. Most notably, when users deposit their coins on a centralized exchange, the exchange holds full custody of those coins, and the exchange has the ability to use those coins to vote. This is not mere theory. There is evidence of exchanges using their users' coins in several DPoS systems. The most notable recent example is the attempted hostile takeover of Steam, where exchanges use their customers' coins to vote for some proposals that help to cement a takeover of the Steam network that the bulk of the community strongly opposed. The situation was only resolved through an outright mass exodus, where a large portion of the community moved to a different chain called Hive. Some DAO protocols are using time lock techniques to limit these attacks, requires users to lock their coins and make them immovable for some period of time in order to vote. These techniques can limit buy, then vote, then sell attacks in the short term, but ultimately, time lock mechanisms can be bypassed by users holding and voting with their coins through a contract that issues a wrapped version of the token, or more trivially, a centralized exchange. As far as security mechanisms go, time locks are more like a paywall on a newspaper website than they are like a lock and key. At present, many blockchains and DAOs with coin voting have so far managed to avoid these attacks in their most severe forms. There are occasional signs of attempted bribes, but despite all of these important issues, there have been much fewer examples of outright voter bribing, including obfuscated forms such as using financial markets that simple economic reasoning would suggest. The natural question to ask is why? Why haven't outright attacks happened yet? My answer is that the why not yet relies on three contingent factors that are true today, but are likely to get less true over time. One is community spirit, from having a tightly knit community where everyone feels a sense of camaraderie in a common tribe and mission. Two, high wealth concentration and coordination of token holders. Large holders have higher ability to affect the outcome and have investments in long-term relationships with each other, both the old boy club VCs, but also many other equally but powerful, lower-profile groups of wealthy token holders, and this makes them much more difficult to bribe. Three is immature financial markets. In governance tokens, ready-made tools for making a wrapper tokens exist in proof-of-concept forms, but are not widely used. Bribing contracts exist, but are similarly immature and liquidity in lending markets is low. When a small coordinated group of users holds over 50% of the coins, and both they and the rest are invested in a tight-knit community, and there are few tokens being lent out at reasonable rates, all of the above bribing attacks may perhaps remain theoretical, but over time, one and three will inevitably become less true no matter what we do, and two must become less true if we want DAOs to become more fair. When those changes happen, will DAOs remain safe? And if coin voting cannot be sustainably resistant against attacks, then what can? Solution 1. Limited Governance 
One possible mitigation to the above issues, and one that is to varying extents being tried already, is to put limits on what coin-driven governance can do. There are a few ways to do this. One, use on-chain governance only for applications and not base layers. Ethereum does this already, as the protocol itself is governed through off-chain governance, while DAOs and other apps on top of this are sometimes, but not always, governed through on-chain governance. Two, limit governance to fixed parameter choices. Uniswap does this, as it only allows governance to affect the token distribution and a 0.05% fee in the Uniswap exchange. Another great example is Rai's ungovernance roadmap, where governance has control over fewer and fewer features over time. Three, add time delays. A governance decision made at time t only takes effect at example t plus 90 days. This allows users and applications that consider the decision unacceptable to move to another application, possibly a fork. Compound has a time delay mechanism in its governance, but in principle, the delay can and eventually should be much longer. Four, be more fork friendly. Make it easier for users to quickly coordinate on and execute a fork. This makes the payoff of capturing governance smaller. The Uniswap case is particularly interesting. It's an intended behavior that the on-chain governance funds teams, which may develop future versions of the Uniswap protocol, but it's up to users to opt in to upgrading to those versions. This is a hybrid of on-chain and off-chain governance that leaves only a limited role for the on-chain side. But limited governance is not an acceptable solution by itself. Those are areas where governance is needed the most. For example, funds distribution for public goods are themselves among the most vulnerable to attack. Public goods funding is so vulnerable to attack because there is a very direct way for an attacker to profit from bad decisions. They can try to push through a bad decision that sends funds to themselves. Hence, we also need techniques to improve governance itself. Solution two, non-coin-driven governance. A second approach is to use forms of governance that are not coin voting driven. But if coins do not determine what weight an account has in governance, what does? There are two natural alternatives. One is proof of personhood systems. Systems that verify that accounts correspond to a unique individual human so that governance can assign one vote per human. For a review of some techniques being developed, you can check out the links and proof of humanity and bright ID for two attempts to implement this. Two, proof of participation. Systems that attest to the fact that some accounts correspond to a person that has participated in some event, passed some educational training, or performed some useful work in the ecosystem. See Pope for one attempt to implement this. There are also hybrid possibilities. One example is quadratic voting, which makes the power of a single voter proportional to the square root of the economic resources that they commit to a decision, preventing people from gaming the system by splitting their resources across many identities requiring proof of personhood. And the still existent financial component allows participants to credibly signal how strongly they care about an issue as well as how strongly they care about the ecosystem. Gitcoin quadratic funding is a form of quadratic voting, and quadratic voting DAOs are being built. Proof of participation is less well understood. 
The key challenge is that determining what counts as how much participation itself requires a quite robust governance structure. It's possible that the easiest solution involves bootstrapping the system with a handpicked choice of 10 to 100 early contributors and then decentralizing over time, as the selected participants of round n determine participation criteria for round n plus 1. The possibility of a fork helps provide a path to recovery from, and an incentive against, governance going off the rails. Proof of personhood and proof of participation both require some form of anti-collision to ensure that the non-money resources being used to measure voting power remains non-financial and does not itself end up inside of smart contracts that sell the governance power to the highest bidder. Solution 3. Skin in the game. The third approach is to break the tragedy of the commons by changing the rules of the vote itself. Coin voting fails because while voters are collectively accountable for their decisions, if everyone votes for a terrible decision, everyone's coins drops to zero. Each voter is not individually accountable. If a terrible decision happens, those who supported it suffer no more than those who opposed it. Can we make a voting system that changes this dynamic and makes voters individually and not just collectively responsible for their decisions? Fork friendliness is arguably a skin-in-the-game strategy. If forks are done in the way that Hive forked from Steam, in the case that a ruinous governance decision succeeds and can no longer be opposed inside the protocol, users can take it upon themselves to make a fork. Furthermore, in that fork, the coins that voted for the bad decision can be destroyed. This sounds harsh, and perhaps it even feels like a violation of an implicit norm that the immutability of the ledger should remain sacrosanct when forking a coin, but the idea seems much more reasonable when seen from a different perspective. We keep the idea of a strong firewall where individual coin balances are expected to be inviolate, but only apply that protection to coins that do not participate in governance. If you participate in governance even indirectly by putting your coins into a wrapper mechanism then you may be held liable for the costs of your actions. This creates individual responsibility. If an attack happens and your coins vote for the, for the attack, then your coins are destroyed. If your coins do not vote for the attack, your coins are safe. The responsibility propagates upward. If you put your coins into a wrapper contract and the wrapper contract votes for an attack, the wrapper contract's balance is wiped, and so you lose your coins. If an attacker borrows XYZ from a DeFi lending platform, when the platform forks, anyone who lent XYZ loses out. Note that this makes lending the governance token in general very risky, and this is an intended consequence. Skin in the game in day-to-day -day voting. But the above only works for guarding against decisions that are truly extreme. What about smaller scale heists, which unfairly favor attackers manipulating the economics of the governance, but not severely enough to be ruinous? And what about, in the absence of any attackers at all, simple laziness, and the fact that coin voting governance has no selection pressure in favor of higher quality opinions? The most popular solution to these kinds of issues is Feuderkey, introduced by Robin Hansen in the early 2000s. Votes become bets. To vote in favor of a proposal, you make a bet that the proposal will lead to a good outcome. And to vote against the proposal, you make a bet that the proposal will lead to a poor outcome. Feuderkey introduces individual responsibility for obvious reasons, 
If you make good bets, you get more coins. If you make bad bets, you lose more coins. Pure feuder key has proven difficult to introduce because in practice, objective functions are very difficult to define. It's not just coin price that people want, but various hybrid forms of feuder key may well work. Examples of hybrid feuder key include one, votes as buy orders. Voting in favor of a proposal requires making an enforceable buy order to buy additional tokens at a price somewhat lower than the token's current price. This ensures that if a terrible decision succeeds, those who support it may be forced to buy their opponents out. But it also ensures that in more normal decisions, coin holders have more slack to decide according to non-price criteria if they so wish. 2. Retroactive public goods funding. You can see a post with the Optimism team about this topic. Public goods are funded by some voting mechanisms retroactively, after they have already achieved a result. Users can buy project tokens to fund their project while signaling confidence in it. Buyers of project tokens get a share of the reward if that project is deemed to have achieved a desired goal. 3. Escalation Games You can see Augur and Kleros. Value alignment on lower-level decisions is incentivized by the possibility to appeal to a higher effort, but higher accuracy, higher-level process. Voters whose vote agrees with the ultimate decision are rewarded. In the latter two cases, hybrid feuder key depends on some form of non-feuder key governance to measure against the objective function or serve as a dispute layer of last resort. However, this non-feuder key governance has several advantages that it does not if used directly. One is it activates later, so it has to access to more information. Two, it is used less frequently, so it, ex it can expend less effort. And three, each use of it has greater consequences, so it's more acceptable to just rely on forking to align incentives for this final layer. Hybrid Solutions There are also solutions that combine elements of the above techniques. Some possible examples. 1. Time delays plus elected specialist governance. This is one possible solution to the ancient conundrum of how to make a crypto-collateralized stablecoin whose locked funds can exceed the value of the profit-taking token without risking governance capture. The stablecoin uses a price oracle constructed from the median of value submitted by N, elected providers. Coin voting chooses the providers, but it can only cycle out one provider each week. If users notice that coin voting is bringing in untrustworthy price providers, they have N divided by two weeks before the stablecoin breaks to switch to a different one. 2. Feuder key plus anti-collision equals reputation. Users vote with reputation, a token that cannot be transferred. Users gain more reputation if their decision leads to desired results, and lose reputation if their decisions lead to undesired results. For an article advocating for a reputation-based scheme, you can check the article. 3. Loosely coupled advisory coin votes. A coin vote does not directly implement a proposed change. Instead, it simply exists to make its outcome public, to build legitimacy for off-chain governance to implement that change. This can provide the benefits of coin votes with fewer risks, as the legitimacy of a coin vote drops off automatically if evidence emerges that the coin vote was bribed or otherwise manipulated. But these are all only a few possible examples. 
there is much more that can be done in researching and developing non-coin-driven governance algorithms. The most important thing that can be done today is moving away from the idea that coin voting is the only legitimate form of governance decentralization. Coin voting is attractive because it feels credibly neutral. Anyone can go and get some units of the governance token on Uniswap. In practice, however, coin voting may well only appear secure today precisely because of the imperfections in its neutrality, namely large portions of the supply staying in the hands of a tightly coordinated clique of insiders. We should stay very wary of the idea that current forms of coin voting are safe defaults. There is still much that remains to be seen about how they function under conditions of more economic stress and mature ecosystems and financial markets, and the time is now to start simultaneously experimenting with alternatives. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. This is why I love Web3. The multidisciplinarian in me just loves the mix of political science, psychology, incentives, economics, game theory. It's all there. And I started out our series on governance a few episodes ago with that. And this is where we're ending it as well, because it all shows up when we think about governing DAOs, governing protocols. It's not easier just because it's technology. It's actually in my opinion, harder because things happen faster. And so you have to think of the different outcomes in advance. Otherwise, an attack happens and before anyone can snap their fingers, it's done and we've lost. So it makes sense to build slowly and not break things and take those different alternative outcomes into account from the get-go. Now, I wanted to end our series on governance with this piece by Vitalik because it summarizes the challenges very well, and it also offers some possible solutions. Some of those are way out there. I think Futurkey is one of those. Um, I don't think it's very likely to happen in the near future. For anyone who's read Super Forecasting, you'll see how most humans are just really bad at forecasting the future, and anything that's based on that would be, well, not great in my mind. But the other options are very valid, and we've already touched on some of them. Like reducing governance is something we discussed a few episodes ago in Governance Minimization by Fred Ursum and Dan Robinson. And that led, if you recall, to credible neutrality, which is something that Vitalik also brings up. Another way was uh, alternative ways to measure participation. And that's what Gabby Goldberg was talking about on last week's episode in The Social Token Paradox. So those are two options that are definitely valid and should be, I think, considered in any governance project that you're building. And I think the main point to remember is that we are in the early days of going west. The majority or enough of the people, I don't know if the majority, but enough of the people who are involved in the community are still highly interested, involved and incentivized to pay attention, to care, to have their skin in the game, and their reputation in the game. And that's why people still care. I know I read DAO proposals. Um, that will change as we move West, as the West becomes more populated. People will stop caring. They will stop have the incentive. Or just like Vitalik says, we won't even notice the misalignment of incentives because the system becomes convoluted. I know, for example, I don't read or vote on any annual shareholder 
of any equity company that I own. Um, that's crazy. I, you know, I invest in equities. I read the conference calls. I never vote in the annual shareholder meeting. Um, and I think we'll get there not too far away when it comes to DAOs and when it comes to governance. And we need to prepare for that day. Because just like I said, these things happen fast. And unlike in an annual shareholder meeting where people have to convene physically and there's a vote and there's a board and there's all this checks and balances, in on-chain governance, things happen fast before we can do anything about it. And so it is smarter to build slow, build intentionally, and take those into account and be prepared for that day. 